Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. This episode of Luke's English Podcast is sponsored by italki, which is an ideal service if you're looking for an English teacher to give you English lessons or if you're looking for an English speaker to talk to on a regular basis as a way of really pushing your English towards greater and greater fluency. Uh, check out italki. When you buy some lessons or some speaking time with them, uh, they will send you a voucher, which is equivalent to about the price of a free lesson. Uh, to get that offer and to just check out all of the wonderful things that uh, uh, italki offer to you, then go to uh, teacherluke.co.uk slash talk or click an italki logo on my website. Okay, right. So that's the little promotion. And now here's the jingle. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. How are you doing today? Hope you're doing all right. I'm fine, thanks. Feeling a little bit sleepy, I have to say. A uh, little bit sort of a uh, little bit sleepy this morning. And I'm recording this in the morning of Friday the 9th of June. Why do you feel sleepy, Luke? Well, the reason is because I stayed up quite late last night. Why did you stay up late last night, Luke? I don't know. Why am I asking myself questions? Is that a strange thing to do? I'm still doing it. Why Why am I asking myself questions? I don't know. But there's no one else here, so I have to kind of simulate my own conversation. Why do you have to simulate your own conversation? Because there's no one else here, I've just said. Okay, anyway, why did you stay up late last... Why did I stay up late? Well, it's because I was watching the coverage of the UK's general election on TV. Whenever there's a general election, which is like a big nationwide election where people vote for MPs to represent their constituencies in the House of Commons, and that's when the entire makeup of the UK's uh, House of Commons can change, including the government. It's a time when the government might change depending on the voting and all that stuff. You might end up with a new leader... Um, one of those elections uh, happened yesterday in the UK. You may have heard me talking to my dad about it on the podcast a few weeks ago. Anyway, the, ele- the actual election happened yesterday. And whenever that happens, whenever there's an election, the BBC do this long uh, coverage. They do a long show where they analyse the results and you know uh, announce the results as they come through. And uh, that goes all throughout the night. So the show is broadcast all night long. Um, and it's normal to kind of stay up quite late watching the results came, come in. So I was up quite late watching those results. Um, and um, so I'm feeling a little bit sort of a uh, bit sleepy this morning. I, I can't talk about politics too much in this episode because that's not what this episode is all about. But suffice to say that it was a bit of a shock for Theresa May and the Conservatives. They expected uh, to win a bigger majority in this election the, the Tories were already in power, but they thought that they would win a bigger majority because when Theresa May called the election, the Tories were doing quite well in the polls, uh, whereas Labour were doing really badly, um, mainly after sort of their inability to present a sort of really um, convincing um, position on Brexit and the general kind of disarray of the Labour Party uh, the way that the Labour Party was split between the sort of left-wing and moderate sides, and and the the basically the Labour Party were in a bit of a mess, and so I think the Conservatives took that opportunity to try and grab more power in Commons by uh, announcing an election when their opposition were at a weak point. But over the last six weeks, that's sort of changed, and the Labour Party have uh, pulled themselves together, particularly. De- uh, uh, 
Jeremy Corbyn, who's been very impressive uh, during the the run-up to this election. And the result is that the Tories have lost a lot of seats and Labour have uh, gained lots of seats. Now, this doesn't mean that the, the Conservatives are out. It might do, but not necessarily. What's actually happened is that we've got a hung Parliament again. A hung Parliament is when um, no single party wins the majority of seats. So... Uh, you end up with no party being able to take uh, government. So what happens in the event of a hung parliament is that the different parties have to negotiate with each other and try to arrange some sort of an agreement where they get together as a coalition, a combination of different political parties. Now, the Conservatives, who actually have more seats than uh, any other party, even though they don't have a majority, uh, they're, they're the ones probably who will be looking for some sort of coalition. But they don't have many options because most of the other parties have said already that they, would, they wouldn't they uh, would uh, coalesce with the uh, Conservatives, except the DUP, who are a kind of Conservative party in Northern Ireland. So it looks like probably the Tories will be uh, wooing the DUP and we might see some sort of Conservative-DUP coalition, which would be a bit odd. Um but a disaster for the Tories. They expected to get a bigger majority. They thought they'd uh, grab more power. The reverse happened. They lost uh, seats. They've lost influence. They've lost power. Uh, and it's all a bit of a disaster for them. Bit of a success for Labour. They're not in power, but they've certainly um, kind of clawed back to a much more respectable position um, under Jeremy Corbyn. So it's all very interesting. But I can't talk about politics too much in this episode because this episode is not about politics i'll have to come back to the subject in a later episode at some point maybe i'll talk to my dad i've already had a couple of messages from people saying oh big sort of result in the election you know i think it's time to talk to your dad well i should do that but um before i do it that i have to do this episode um i talked about it in the last one so i've got to get it recorded and published probably today and i may come back to the subject of politics but i can't talk about it too much because there isn't time i've got to get through all of this stuff about language because that's what this episode of the podcast is going to be all about essentially conclusions about language and language learning from the david crystal interview that i had on the podcast uh recently episode 454 and 455 were both uh, conversations with uh the super linguist david crystal Super linguist isn't really a word. I've just created it. But I'm just saying that because uh, David Crystal is is a linguist and he's super as well. He really is a super guy. So let's call him a super linguist uh, or not. We don't have to call him that. Uh, we could just call him David if you like. But anyway, here we are back once again with um, an episode of this podcast for learners of English. And this one should contain insights about the English language and the process of learning that language straight from the horse's mouth. Uh, that's an expression, by the way, straight from the horse's mouth, um, which means that you get information directly from a reliable and trusted source. And in this case, that source, or indeed horse, is Professor David Crystal, who, of course, isn't really a horse. That would be very bizarre if I'd spoken to a horse who was an expert on language. No, of course, he's not a horse. He's a great expert on the English language, the author of many books, known by anyone studying linguistics. He's described as the world's leading voice on language. And I was extremely happy to have that leading voice on my podcast. And there's certainly a lot of good information to take in from those episodes, whether you're learning English or simply interested in languages and what makes them tick. So in this episode, the plan is to go through some of the ideas that David talked about and see if I can kind of point out some specific bits of relevance for learners of English. So the idea is to to uh, consolidate uh, the things that he said and package it uh, for you, uh, the learners of English out there. So let's unpack and unpick the wise words of Professor David Crystal and really clarify some truths, some tips and some general conclusions about language learning and perhaps explain some of the vocabulary that you heard as well. So essentially, I am going to mainly repeat the points that David Crystal made in the previous two episodes. I'm kind of just going to repeat the things that he said, but the aim is to clarify it all and make it a bit more digestible. And the idea, I think, that if if you kind of really... Um, 
if you really are able to understand clearly the main points he made, I think it can make a big difference to your whole approach to language and language learning, and it will allow the concepts and ideas to really go in and stick with you. Um, And uh, throughout this, I will be constantly attempting to answer the question, how is this useful for learners of English? Okay, that's what I'll be thinking. How is this useful specifically for learners of English? Because David Crystal isn't an English teacher. He's a linguist. So most of his work is dedicated to just understanding language uh, rather than uh, perhaps helping people to learn it. He's more about just understanding it. So my job is to help you learn it. So let's try and sort of guide uh, the things, take the things that he said and see if we can guide the whole thing towards some conclusions about learning English. So you should be able to take away quite a lot from this episode in combination with the other two. So the first question that I asked uh, David Crystal was about uh, a recent book of his called Making Sense, The Glamorous Story of English Grammar. Um, yes, and I said to him, is grammar really glamorous? Is it really glamorous? And uh, apparently glamour and grammar actually come from the same word. They used to be the kind of the same thing. Because apparently uh, in many, many years ago, grammar, um, language and so on, used to be considered like magic. This is hundreds of years ago, before we really understood things like language, um, it was a bit like art. It was considered to be a form of magic. Um, so that's where the, the idea of glamour and grammar come come from, the sort of magical, impressive idea. Um, but these days, grammar seems to have lost its magic in the way that people think about it. Because, it, it, because these days, uh, it seems that grammar is considered to be boring and prescriptive and all about the rules that you learned at school. Uh, By the way, prescriptive means basically relating to the imposition or enforcement of a rule or method. So prescriptive refers to that approach of just dictating what's right and wrong and what you can and can't do. So people often uh, associate this grammar with things like prescriptive uh, rules and, uh, and, and so on, boring stuff. So it's, it's lost its glamour. Um, I mean, and it's no surprise because it's not really glamorous if you study grammar like the way that they used to do it in school, which is just parsing sentences, working out what the part of speech is. Sentence parsing, uh, P-A-R-S-I-N-G, or to parse a sentence, P-A-R-S-E. To parse a sentence means to basically break down a sentence into its constituent parts, all the different parts of speech. And for example, where's the subject? Where's the verb? Where's the object? Where's the the complement? That kind of thing is basically sentence parsing. It's sort of like the most basic form of grammar, where you're just doing a mechanical analysis of the different parts of speech. Um, which is not very glamorous at all. It's it's pretty boring, really. And David Crystal says that the only way uh, that true, proper sort of understanding and appreciation of grammar works is if you ask why people are using those forms in that particular situation. Um, and I think that this relates to learning English in the same way as I'm going to say, I, I think again and again in this episode, because it's a, a big thing that you take away, that learning uh, English, learning the grammar is not just about learning the forms and the way that those forms are changed and so on. It's also uh, about understanding why those particular forms are used, uh, understanding the pragmatic uh, reasons uh, that those forms even exist in the first place. And there's a there's a contrast to be made between the semantic and the pragmatic. So semantic is ba- mainly focusing on meaning and pragmatic really is all about understanding why people say the things that they say. So for for those of you out there learning English, obviously you have to take a semantic approach, just learning uh, what the, the, the grammatical forms actually mean, and also learning the form, like how you construct sentences with different tenses or in different with passive forms or the different types of structure. But also you must always be asking yourself why. Why is this form being used uh, instead of another form? And that's really crucial to getting a, a deeper understanding of, of um, grammar. Because understanding the motivations of the people who use the grammar, that's the pragmatic side, is the interesting part. And that's when grammar really comes alive and it becomes glamorous 
in the old sense of the word. Uh, So for learners of English, this means exploring not just the form of the language that you're studying, but also the reasons why each different form is used. The challenge is to get the semantic side and the pragmatic side into your studies. So don't just uh, study grammar rules um, on their own in a list. Uh, You need to examine the living language and notice those forms and the way that they're used to perform specific functions. Um, And this led us to the question of can you learn English without studying grammar, which is one of those things that you, you know, see quite a lot, especially on the Internet. There are various people out there on the Internet uh, selling English courses or selling a a method or an approach to learning English. And uh, a lot of them use the very um, seductive um, approach of telling you that you can learn English without studying the boring grammar rules that, uh, you know, it's, it's possible to just study English sort of by magic without actually having to look at the rules ever. Um, so th- the question is, is that really possible? Can you actually learn English without studying grammar? And uh, David Crystal said that, well, children do it. Uh, obviously, you know, we, we all grow up as kids learning the language without actually having to, to study the grammar from the bottom up. So children can uh, do it, and adults can do it too, but it takes a long time for all of the language to be assimilated by exposure. And you can cut out a lot of that time by actually just studying the rules. So you've got two approaches. One approach is just to sort of live and breathe the language in some way, and then the grammar rules just fall into place automatically, like the way a child learns English, Or you study the rules and you actually kind of look at the blueprints of the language and understand it that way. Um, And the point is that as adults, we can apply what we already know and sort of uh, apply all of our knowledge and our experience uh, that we've gained in adulthood. We can apply that to the learning of language. So that means I think that we can use our intelligence and our ability to work things out our ability to understand rules, the fact that there are lots of published materials out there that attempt to break down the language and and, and sort of break it up into bite-sized chunks. Um, We can use our our study skills and apply that to learning grammar. It can save time. So um, studying grammar is an essential part of the learning process and it it goes together with a more long-term process of acquiring English through exposure. So the main thing is really that it's both, that you have to focus on the language and listen to it and read it a lot and kind of think about the meaning and let them let the grammar sort of take care of itself. But also you can speed up the whole process by every now and then doing a little bit of grammar study. Um, so I guess the answer is that can you learn English without studying grammar? Yes, you can, but it's going to take rather a long time and it would make some it would make sense if you can stand it to do a bit of grammar study and it doesn't have to be that boring. I mean, it's not that painful. I mean, goodness me, it's not that bad, is it? Doing some doing a bit of grammar work? Uh, especially those of you out there who are, you know, bright-minded people who are able to analyse things. I mean, I think all of these polyglots, um, you know, these people who speak different languages, I think many of them study the grammar rules and they get used to sort of packaging the rules up and they they notice patterns in in rules across different languages. Um, So I think it's a wise thing to do a bit of grammar study, but you should combine it with just the sort of more, more, what's the word for it, more almost subliminal or let's say natural process of language acquisition that you get from doing things like regularly listening to episodes of my podcast or watching movies or engaging in conversations or reading things like that. I've always said it, you know, this podcast is best consumed as part of a balanced diet, which means that you should listen to this, but also you should do some more sort of old-fashioned studying of grammar at the same time, but with the right kind of mindset, as we will talk about uh, in in a moment. Um, so it it's David Crystal said it's it's no good just learning the rules though, and being able to explain it all on paper. So. Um, thinking about those moments when you do actually start to look at the grammar 
using a grammar study book like English Grammar in Use, for example. Um, it's no good just learning the rules and being able to explain those rules and also being able to, you know, use the different forms. That's no good on its own. You also have to know when and why and where all of the grammar is used. So it's about applying yourself to the pragmatic uh, the pragmatic aspects of the language that you're using and letting that guide your choice of language. Um, so I've said before, listen a lot, read a lot. Um, like, you know, listen to this podcast or any other material that you fancy, but it's best enjoyed as part of a balanced diet. You should also do some grammar work as well, like self-study exercises in a grammar book. Uh, but make sure that you're always asking yourself, why are these people using this language like this? How are the motivations affecting the choice of words and structures? Uh, and when you're doing your listening, when you're listening to this podcast or anything else, try to notice bits of language which you've studied or which are just getting uh, used in the conversation. Um, you know, like, could you, could you, for example, when you're listening to a bit of language, could you say the same thing another way? And what would be the difference between the way it was said and the, the, the alternative way? Um, you know, how is language related to that? Try experimenting with different ways to put something and get used to the slight nuance that it adds. For example, using a passive structure or an active one. Okay, so I guess it's kind of like a yin and yang sort of thing. You know what I mean? A yin and yang. Um, the yin and the yang. So on one side, you just listen to uh, you just listen to stuff like this podcast. You just listen to English and focus on the meaning and just enjoy listening to to whatever content that you're consuming. Okay, that's on one side. The other side is that you study the, the grammar and you kind of do the, you, you go to those grammar books and you study the rules and stuff. Now, you know, with the yin and the yang, there's like a little dot from each side on the other side as well, right? So I guess with the, on the one hand, if you're just listening and you're relaxing and you're just sort of focusing on the message, the, the, the little dot in there would be the fact that you're also um, keeping your mind open to the bits of grammar that you're hearing, that you're trying to notice little bits of grammar and you're in the back of your head, you're sort of sort of just thinking a little bit about the grammar forms that you're hearing as well. And then on the other side, we had, you know, the studying approach. But then there should always be an element in there of um, understanding the bigger picture and understanding why those lang those bits of language are used and, and always thinking about the meaning and the context and uh, looking at the grammar in a, in a broader context. Okay. Um, now, the next question I said to him was, I know that you're not actually an English teacher, but do you have any tips for learners of English who want to improve their grammar? His answer was, no, I don't, because I'm not a teacher. Uh, and he gave some sort of linguistic -y tips, which, you know, I think we've already stated, which is basically to know all the grammar, to know uh, what all of the grammar is, like learning all of the meta language for describing the grammar, the names of the tenses, the different parts of speech, being able to talk about uh, grammar. You know, that's important. But it's also important to be aware of the English that's being used in the real world and how all of that applies to the grammar that you've studied. For example, if you're a student in a language class, you're going to be exposed in the classroom to a certain form of English. It's a kind of graded English in many cases. For example, if you're in a, an upper-intermediate class, you're going to be getting upper-intermediate uh, English in your textbook or whatever. So it's a fairly graded form. Uh, and, I mean, they're great, these textbooks. They're really, really good because they've over many, many years, they've been developing their methods and they're excellent. But the English is a little bit graded. So you, do, you should always also be keeping an eye on, on how English is used in the real world too. So that's in your, your newspapers and in podcasts and movies and things like that. And so, you know, always shift between the two, the sort of slightly more controlled language that you're learning uh, from your books and then uh, how you can see that being played out in more authentic contexts. Um, I personally would add, uh, on the subject of studying grammar, I would say these things. First of all, don't be afraid of it, okay? There's no reason to be scared of grammar or anything. Uh, you probably feel a bit bad about it because you have memories of school and boring lessons as in school of grammar. Well, you know, you might find as an adult that grammar is a lot more interesting, actually, 
And it's certainly possible to to study it. In fact, in some cases, it's even easier than things like vocabulary or pronunciation. There are so many million, you know, so many words in English. I think it was uh, David Crystal mentioned the word, the, the number one million. A lot of words... Uh, and also, pronunciation is complicated too. The way that we, uh, you know, combine words in sentences and and all the different vowel and consonant sounds and things like that—that's a bit of a nightmare. But grammar, at least, is slightly more contained. I think David Crystal said there's about three thousand bits of grammar that you basically have to learn. Uh, three thousand might seem like a lot, but um, it's definitely possible. It's doable. It's achievable, isn't it? So don't be afraid of the of the grammar, and and you should see it as something that you can uh, get to grips with. Um, it's more interesting than you might think. You might need to learn some abstract terms, um, meta language, but don't be put off. And remember that the more you learn about grammar, the more that you can learn. And you should always look for examples, and always remember that learning English is about what you can do, not what you what you know. Okay, it's about things that you could do, not things that you know. So you should always be trying to convert the grammar that you've understood into active grammar that you can actually use. Okay, um, learning about why certain grammar forms are used really opens up the way that you see language. For example, learning that passive forms are used when you don't want to mention who did the action allows you to see all those situations. You might want, for example, to write an impersonal letter. Uh, or give a general notice, or describe a process, or simply talk about something that happened to someone without constantly talking about who did it. For example, imagine a story about a guy who's a victim, like a guy who got kidnapped, and people keep doing things to him throughout the story, but you want the guy to be the centre of the story. So you're probably going to use a lot of passive forms in that situation, you know? Like, you know, John was kidnapped... He was bound and gagged and thrown into the back of a taxi. It took two hours for him to be rescued. So all of those are passive forms because the story is all about John. So we put John at the beginning. John was kidnapped. Um, and, um, I mean, it's it's also pretty obvious who did it. It was kidnappers. Um, and I'm not revealing much about who did it at this point, Right. John was kidnapped. He was bound and gagged and thrown into the back of a taxi. It took two hours for him to be rescued. All passive forms. Um, so uh, then I asked David Crystal about uh, his political history of grammar in the UK, which ended up being published online uh, at davidcrystal.com. Uh, it was meant to be an extension to his book about grammar, but it was a bit too UK oriented. It was all about the way that grammar has been viewed in politics over the years. Uh, and I asked him, what relationship does the average British person have with grammar today? And essentially, British people have an up and down relationship with grammar. Now, I suppose what's interesting uh, for you to think about here as a learner of English is, um, do you know more grammar than the average British person and grammar of English? So Brits over the years have had an up and down relationship with grammar based on the fact that grammar study came in and out of fashion and grammar was learned in a fairly two-dimensional way when it was in schools. People are often a bit prescriptive about grammar, banging on about what you can and can't do, as they think it, it should be about rules uh, and regulations, um, you know, uh, but they're, they're really only attempting to impose controls over something which evolves over time. So here's a little summary of what David said about uh, knowledge of grammar in the UK over the years. So in the 1950s, kids all learned basic grammar at school and they got examined uh, at 16. OK, uh, so like, for example, my dad, when he was a, a kid at school, uh, that he studied grammar and he was examined uh, at 16. And, you know, they, they had this fairly sort of dull approach to understanding grammar. It was all about identifying parts of speech in a sentence, sentence passing. Uh, then that went out of fashion in the 1970s. Uh, and there were several generations of kids who didn't study grammar at all at school. And now those generations have grown up and some of them have become teachers. So that's probably people of my generation or a little bit older. Now, these people who didn't study grammar at school as kids and have now grown up to become teachers, uh, they have struggled because they don't really know any grammar. 
Um, and you, David Crystal, talked about there being two generations of teachers. There are the older ones who grew up in the old style, who had learned grammar, and then the younger ones who were teaching, but they had no knowledge of grammar. And uh, by kind of getting the grammar out of the syllabus in order to favour more sort of, I guess, communicative approaches or more sort of uh, discovery-led approaches to, or just simply other subjects that, that came in, in its place, instead of the more prescriptive approach to, to, to grammar. In the 70s, that went out of fashion. Um, so essentially, they, they'd uh, thrown the baby out with the bathwater. If you throw the baby out with the bathwater, it means that in the act of getting rid of something, you kind of get rid of something else that's quite valuable. You can imagine, for example, filling the bath, washing the baby, and then throwing the water out, and by accident you throw out the baby as well, which obviously would be a disaster. So apparently by getting rid of grammar, they'd thrown the baby out with the bathwater, which meant that they basically they'd thrown away too much. And it was necessary to try and educate that younger generation who hadn't learnt grammar at school. And David Crystal was part of that. Apparently he was uh, involved in lots of uh, language awareness programmes, uh, the aim of which were to bring a, a modicum of grammar back into the syllabus or curriculum. Syllabus or curriculum, these are basically the education programmes. You call it a syllabus or a curriculum. At school, you have a syllabus or curriculum. It's the educational programme. And so, yes, David had to do lots of basic grammar training for these teachers. And he wrote a book called Rediscover Grammar, which is for those people who, you know, it's either forgotten what little they'd studied or just didn't really study it at all. Now in schools, grammar is back again in the old fashioned way. And kids are being examined again for their ability to recognise parts of speech and do sentence passing. Uh, but... You know, it's just that boring stuff about analysing the structure and that the semantics and pragmatics aren't there. It's just mechanical analysis of sentences and some teachers are very unhappy about that. Um, and David has mentioned that there are three types of audience, I suppose for him, three types of audience for his books. There are the oldies who are in their 60s and 70s and they know about the old style grammar teacher, teaching. Then there's the middle generation, some of whom know a lot about grammar and some who don't because they came in after grammar had gone out of fashion. And then there's the modern generation for whom grammar is back again and they have to come to terms with it. So these are the sorts of people that David writes his, 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 many of his books for. Uh, one positive thing for learners of English is that you probably know more about grammar than the average native English speaker. You should probably feel quite good about that as well, that you've probably got more meta-language to talk about grammar of English. You probably know a lot more about the whole structure of English than the average native speaker. I did talk to James about that subject ages ago on the podcast, as I mentioned uh, recently, uh, discussing grammar with my brother. And it was all about how much does James know about English grammar, the, the sort of typical grammar that the learners of English study. Uh, the, the results of that uh, conversation were quite interesting. Um, so uh, next thing I asked David was um, about, well, some of the questions that Amber and Paul um, and... I had uh, discussed on the podcast recently. So I said to him, people complain about the decline of the English language. Are standards of English declining? And David said, well, that question comes from 2017, but you can see exactly the same question about language decline being raised at almost any time. And according to some people, the English language is in a state of terminal decline, according to these people. Uh, and that also applies to spelling and pronunciation and punctuation as well as grammar, plus things like discourse politeness, the way in which we manage our politeness in the way that we speak. And it seems that grammar gets more mentions in terms of it, uh, in terms of language decline, because there's basically less grammar to complain about than 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 vocabulary. Grammar's only got about three thousand or so basic points to master. So people feel that if you can't manage the grammar, then there's something serious to worry about. And people look at contemporary examples to justify their complaints. These are the things that um, Amber Paul and I were talking about. Things like the split infinitive to boldly go, or um, what else was it? Ending a sentence with a preposition. Uh, what are you looking at? Um, you know things like that. 
those are the contemporary uh, examples. Um, in the nineteen in the eighteen sixties, in the nineteenth century, it was because of the Americans, the influence of American English. Uh, today, the internet gets a lot of the blame, especially texting and tweeting and SMS. And basically, uneducated people will blame what they sense to be a reason for what they perceive to be a decline. So people think there's a decline, and they'll blame whatever factors they think are are the reason. In reality, there isn't really any kind of decline going on, quite the opposite in English. Uh, And when you study the language, you realise that there's really no correlation between the signs of decline and the features that these people mention. And usually people cite these old prescriptive rules, the fact that the rules are being broken, and that means that the language is dying or something, uh, like the fact that you should never end a sentence with a preposition, that you should never split an infinitive, and so on. Well, the English language has survived very well, even though people have been breaking these so-called rules for 200 years. Um, and, um, you know, for example, this is the man I was talking to. Um, any nor- any modern person realises that ending um, the sentence with a preposition like that is just a, a stylistic decision, and saying this is the man to whom I was talking is much more formal. So it's really a, a stylistic choice. Uh, also, anyway, the informal usage, um, adding a preposition at the end, um, that's got just as long a history in English as, as the formal version. In fact, it's in Shakespeare. For example, to be or not to be, that is the question, uh, blah, 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 or fight others that we know not of, which is a sentence ending with a preposition from uh, Hamlet, one of Shakespeare's most famous plays. So it's really a huge puzzle to understand why the old grammarians decided to be so prescriptive Um, And David thinks that they were just blinded by their views and they weren't able to take, um, you know, uh, a more broad-minded approach to the language. Um, So the point is that people often talk about language decline, but it's rarely the case. Uh, And what people cite as evidence for decline are not really evidence for decline at all. And these people don't know what they're talking about. Uh, For learners of English, uh, the point is that you have to realise that language the english language just like any language is always in flux it's always changing it's in flux f-l-u-x in flux changing uh so you just have to keep up with it and you also have to remember that some people have slightly traditional views about language for example more people in the world even though more people in the world say schedule with a cur sound schedule uh I continue to say schedule with a sh sound because it basically annoys people if I do it the American way. So if I'm with British people and I say schedule, even though technically that's kind of right because uh, the majority of people in the world do say schedule, my friends or my parents would get annoyed with me if I did it. So I continue to say schedule, even though I think there's nothing intrinsically wrong with schedule. There's nothing inherently bad about that um i continue to say schedule uh just because it would annoy people if i if i didn't um similarly i think there's nothing too bad about splitting an infinitive but i tend to avoid doing that because it makes people annoyed as well so as you know basically these these people who get so upset about perceived uh, decline in language or errors they're basically like grammar nazis who don't really know what they're talking about but as far as they're concerned they're right um so i think it's not really such a big problem for learners of english really the kinds of errors that we're talking about here like the split infinitive and stuff like that i don't think these are big problems for learners of english because you've got your own issues to deal with with accuracy probably issues that come from the influence of your first language so that's that's the main th- hurdle that you need to get over. And I wouldn't worry about these little nuances and little so-called errors that some people get upset about. You, sh- you know, don't worry about it. They, they don't know what they're talking about. And you just, you know, need to focus on, um, you know, improving your English and trying to avoid too many influences from your first language. I mean, influences from your first language that prevent you being intelligible. That's the most important thing. There's, there are always going to be some influences from your L1 
in in your English. And to an extent, that's fine, as long as people understand uh, exactly what you're talking about. Um, Anyway, so don't worry too much about the prescriptive grammar Nazis, uh, because they don't know what they're talking about, essentially. Um, You know, we should have a progressive view of how languages uh, evolve and how language rules evolve but a lot of people don't share those views you should also know as a learner of english that everyone struggles a little bit with the language sometimes even native speakers native speakers get things wrong as well so there's a scale of accuracy and it's rare to find that anyone who is considered to be absolutely 100 percent accurate and perfect in their english all the time so you know just keep that in perspective uh, and if you encounter people who say, oh, it's the death of the English language, well, they're talking out of their bum, basically. You can remind them that English is alive and well and is showing no signs of dying. Quite the opposite. English is is extremely healthy and vigorous these days. And these people who, who talk about the death of the English language, well, they're just being reactionary and hyperbolic and never mind all that. On the subject of language death and uh, the the idea of the death of the English language. David Crystal said um, that almost half the languages in the world are endangered, uh, but English isn't one of them. The reasons for the uh, for these languages being endangered are many. It could be linguistic genocide, which is basically when, let's say, a government or whoever is in authority forbids the use of the language. So forbidding the use of the language, or it could be just the case of opting not to use the language for political reasons, for example, because you want to side with a particular faction in your country, and so you you choose to use that language. Uh, but when a language is endangered, uh, for example, when another language starts taking over the functions of that language, people no longer find themselves able to use that language for everything. And certain facilities kind of disappear because people have got used to doing it in the other language. So this is, I guess, an answer to that question I had of, has a language ever just broken down and died because of people using it wrong? Well, it seems that languages, the structure of languages do kind of get eroded, but it's not as a consequence of people using them wrong, it's just because they're being replaced by other more dominant languages. And those other dominant languages are dominant for sort of non-linguistic reasons. They're dominant for economic or cultural reasons, power, politics, that sort of thing. That's what dictates um, which languages survive and which languages die. It's all about the, the power balance But you do find that when endangered languages get eroded by other more powerful languages, that the somehow the structure of those endangered languages does suffer. For example, Welsh, uh, which is quite a successful language these days because of the activism that um, has been going on, that people have been actively defending and standing up for Welsh. But a few years ago, English was taking over Welsh. Um, And also, uh, some of the some of the rules of Welsh grammar weren't being used. So certain sort of forms of Welsh weren't really being used. And you get a sense that the structure of the language uh, is or was declining. So certain Welsh structures stopped being used because they were kind of being replaced by English instead. And it, it looked like a kind of structural erosion of Welsh because of the influence of English. So um, it's more common in vocabulary, that kind of influence of another language on on the language. Uh, That's more common with vocab. Uh, For example, many foreign languages now contain English words. And David Crystal mentioned the the word franglais, which, uh, funnily enough, is the name of Paul Taylor's comedy show, which is um, presented half in English and half in French. But certain things like franglais, which is when French takes on so many English words that you can listen to someone speaking French in a business meeting or something and you start to notice lots of English words being used. And those might be replacing equivalent words in French. Um, But anyway, there's no hint of decline in relation to English, which is actually going from strength to strength. It's spoken by something like 2.3 billion people. English is nowhere near death. So when people talk about language death, really what they mean is just that language is changing. And language change is difficult for lots of people to take. And they talk about death, but that's irrelevant, really. The only languages that don't change are dead ones. 
languages, living languages, go in very unexpected directions and you can't prediction. Prediction? No, you can't predict them. Petty language gripes don't bother David Crystal and they don't bother me either. Um, Partly, I think this is to do with identity, that people get upset about perceived errors in English because it's about identity. People are annoyed that British identity is changing or being influenced by American identity. But getting annoyed at the language usage, which is a symptom of something else, is a little bit redundant, really. Um, But some people just don't like change. But David sees it as a natural part of the way that languages develop. So I think we should all be a bit like David. What about your language? What's going on there? Do people often complain about the death of your language? Because it seems to happen in lots of other languages. I know that it happens in French, that you often get commentators, reactionary commentators, who are panicking about the, the death of French or whatever. Is it the same in your language? Uh, what's the general consensus on the condition of your language these days? Uh, how do people react to the influence of English on your language? I wonder. Um, okay, next question was from Paul Taylor, basically. And I said, um, my mate Paul often says that we're actually using the language incorrectly because there are more non-native speakers than native speakers of English. Is he right or is he talking nonsense? Well, it's kind of half and half. Uh, the error that Paul makes here is talking about right and wrong when when looking at English on the global stage, that there isn't really right and wrong. You can't really talk about right and wrong these days. What Paul is correct about, though, is the perception that there are more non-natives than natives uh, speaking English. That's true. Um, and English really is a global thing. It's It's a global situation now. It's not really local anymore. It's global. And there are more non-native speakers using English than native speakers, uh, which is quite an interesting situation because it might kind of makes you think, well, who owns the language really? And who dictates what's right and wrong about it? Well, um, English, yes, is a global situation. It's not just about north and south of England or different regions in English-speaking countries. It's really global languages and, well, global language differences in English. And those global language differences are kind of like the same as local ones. They can be considered in the same way. They're equivalent. It's just basically different communities using English differently on a global scale. So in the same way that in the UK, you've got different communities using English differently with different accents, slightly different dialects and so on. You can say the same thing about the world now. There are different communities all around the world using English in their own local ways. So now we're talking about Irish English, Indian English, Australian English, you know, even different types of Australian English, different types of Irish English, different types of New Zealand English or South African English or Singaporean English, and many, many more, including French English, Japanese English, English from the Caribbean and so on. All of them versions of English spoken by people who've learnt it to a proficient level as a first or second language. So we're talking here about... Uh, speakers of English who've learnt it to a proficient level, not learners of English who are making the typical mistakes that you make as you attempt to raise your English to a proficient level. No, we're talking about the English used by the proficient speakers, even people who have English as a first language. And you see that there is a variety of different forms of proficient English around the world. And what we see is that it's just different communities that are right in their circumstances. Um, And we talk about standard English and non-standard English. So in the world, we have kind of non-standard English and different types of non-standard English. And that they essentially have the same level of status as standard English these days. That standard English, like, for example, received pronunciation, is traditionally viewed as the correct version. But really, non-standard English has its own justification too. And there are reasons why non-standard English exists. And they're perfectly good reasons. Non-standard English and standard English are basically now equal in terms of their status. Um, And, you know, saying, for example, that uh, standard English is somehow better than other forms of English just isn't the right answer. Because 
how can you say that one language is better than another when, for example, one form of non-standard English is the is clearly the most appropriate way for this local community to communicate with themselves and with the wider world in a way that reflects who they really are. And that's really what it's about, that language is there to uh, help people to communicate who they are at that particular moment. So, for example, the English in Jamaica is exactly the right kind of English uh, for that context because they're expressing exactly who they are in the most effective way. So, you know, Jamaican English is a, is a non-standard English, but it's still just as viable as any other forms of English. Um, so, obviously, a standard a standard in English does promote intelligibility. It allows people to understand each other more. And standard English has lots of users. But there's also a huge number of dialects, like international dialects, and many, many different kinds of English reflecting different community backgrounds. So you can't really say right and wrong in these circumstances. It's just a number of different communities using English in a way that's appropriate for their conditions. Uh, So when you start looking at individual cases, like, for example, a foreign learner breaking a rule of standard English, then you've got a, a transitional situation there with a learner who's like transitioning from like, um, you know, their elementary English to a more proficient level of English. That's a transitional situation. Um, uh, but, you know, in terms of the, the, the way that different forms of English like British and American English coexist, it's not really possible to say right or wrong when millions of people are using both versions. Now, in China, there are uh, many very fluent speakers of English these days, not learners, but proficient speakers who have developed a certain usage, which is basically Chinese English. It's functional English that everyone understands, uh, but it's uniquely Chinese as well. Um, you, You know, you might find local features of grammar and vocabulary, but those local features don't keep communities apart. So we're still able to understand each other. British people are still able to understand American people, for example. Uh, So the differences don't keep the communities apart. We just learn to understand each other and appreciate the differences as local colour or flavour. So these small differences are expressions of identity and rarely get in the way of intelligibility. Uh, And this is one of the reasons that the UK has proud diversity in its English accents. They're all statements of local identity. And although we see the differences, we are able to communicate with each other. And basically in the world today, it's a similar story. There are basically different forms of English that uh, just express slightly different local situations. So it's, it's, it's really a question of whether it's appropriate or inappropriate for that particular circumstance. So is English, the English that's being used, either the accent or the dialect of English that's being used, is it appropriate or inappropriate for that particular circumstance? That's how we judge uh, uh, language usage. Not whether it's right or wrong based on universal criteria, but whether it's appropriate or inappropriate for that particular circumstance. And the two criteria for judging whether something is appropriate or inappropriate are intelligibility and identity. Okay, Intellig- And these are the two core things that really seem to explain a lot about, you know, uh, the way that we should be judging language usage. Intelligibility is basically, do we understand you? That's what intelligibility is all about. Do we understand you? And if we understand you, if we understand exactly what you mean, then it's appropriate for that situation, okay? The second thing is identity. And language differences are expressions of local identity. Uh, language is adapted to re- to reflect the locale, especially the vocabulary. You know, all the different words that we use, all the reference points to important things specific to that culture, local terms, local idioms, local expressions, local objects, even local animals and, and you know, local types of climate or local types of food, for, for example. Uh, now, if the English that you use is wrong for that context, because... Um, the the way it expresses a certain identity, uh, then you have a problem of appropriacy. For example, if Ali G went to the Houses of Parliament to speak with politicians and civil servants, then his English would probably be considered inappropriate. 
even if it is intelligible, even if they understand what he's saying, it might be considered inappropriate because people would think that it's not the proper way to address people in that formal situation and so on. Uh, Similarly, if Theresa May went to a skate park and try to talk to some of the locals, she'd have a hard time as well because her, her sort of formal political type of speaking would seem out of place in that situation. Um, so it's a question of intelligibility and identity, all right? So for learners of English, you've got to think about, are you being intelligible? And I think this is probably the most important one for, for learning English. Do we understand you? That's what you've got to focus on, being able to express exactly what you mean to say and for other people to understand it. Then there comes the question of identity, which is all about, you know, uh, how do you like who are you and and how do you want that to be expressed through your english we'll come on to that in in a in a in a moment i think but basically english is always in tension between intelligibility and identity so um in terms of the identity that's all about whether uh uh what am i saying English is always in tension between intelligibility and identity. All right, then. So, like, for example, local versions of English need to be different enough to express their identity, right? So you you want to be unique in your English in order to express your unique local identity. But they, they shouldn't be so unique that nobody understands them, you know? So you want it to be kind of uh, have a special identity of its own, but you also want it to be intelligible at the same time. So it's kind of like this kind of middle point between being intelligible and being uh, uh, being uh, unique in terms of identity. Uh, okay. Um, so uh, I said that my French students, who I teach in my language classes here in France, my French students uh, often feel a bit bad about their pronunciation. You know, and this is a very, very typical thing that you hear French learners of English saying that they feel uh, really almost ashamed of their strong French accent, and they do tend to beat themselves up about it. Um, so the question is, do my French students need to worry so much about the fact that they can't pronounce th sounds, that they can't pronounce certain vowel sounds, and so on? Now, this is probably the the number one concern of my French students, who judge each other harshly for their accents as well as themselves and also feel very bad about it uh, it may be the same in your country i don't know what's the general attitude do people judge each other harshly for having an accent but i find in france people can be very disdainful of a strong french accent i personally don't mind it that much i mean people in america and the uk often say that a french accent is quite sexy and we find it quite attractive but in france they're a bit ashamed of having French accents. But really, the bottom line is, once upon a time, uh, the, you know, these people would have felt bad because other people would have said, you're speaking English badly. Like, you know, native English speakers would have said, you're speaking English wrong. Uh, and that's not such a long time ago. But now there is no such thing as a single version of universal English. There is no single correct uh, English accent. Uh, basically, English is a very broad church, okay? Now, you might, I know that many of you out there are thinking, but I want there to be a right version. I want there to be a right and a wrong. I need to know where the lines are, okay? But you have to understand that English is an extremely broad church. And any really proper understanding of the way that language works understands that, uh, you know, it's it's very varied and diverse and that there are many different types of English, all of which are equally valid as long as they are intelligible and they're just expressing the, the global nature of English. That, you know, that of course, different people in different communities are going to speak English in a slightly different way. So what was I saying about my French students? They don't really need to worry about sounding a bit French. I don't think it's a big problem. Um, you know, received pronunciation uh, is spoken by less than 2% of the population of England. Received pronunciation is a minority accent. 
So when people say, but I don't speak, receive pronunciation, well, you can kind of say, well, nobody does. Hardly anyone speaks with received pronunciation. It's very unrepresentative. In fact, English mostly is spoken by all these different types of accent. So why can't your accent as a non-native speaker of English be included in that broad church of different uh, sounds of English? You know, why should people be expected to speak this minority accent when other accents are now considered to be acceptable in their own right? So received pronunciation is important, of course, because of tradition, but it's minuscule compared to things like American English and Indian English. So it's no, it's no longer possible to condemn an accent because it doesn't fit in with this small, unrepresentative version of the language. You have to analyse it on its own terms with its local identity. And as long as the accent doesn't interfere with the need uh, for intelligibility, then that's, that's all right. So the main thing is, can we understand you? So the main thing is, when you're thinking about your accent, and I know that many of you out there really want to lose your accent and you want to sound like me or you want to sound like, you know, someone that you've heard on the BBC or something. The main thing is, right, can we understand you? Can we understand exactly what you want to say? And if the answer to that is yes, then really you've got no worries. Does it matter if you sound a bit French? Does it matter if you sound a bit Spanish? What's wrong with sounding French anyway? I mean, I was particularly impressed by Emmanuel Macron, the um, the new French president. He made a speech in English. He did a video. I think he was talking to uh, people in the United States who, um, you know, might want to come to France to work. And he was offering, uh, the, you know, he was basically inviting people to come to France, uh, that France is an innovative country, that the French like innovations. So come to France and you'll be, uh, I think it was, You'll, you'll be welcomed in France uh, for climate change innovations. And Macron did the entire speech in English. And it wasn't perfect English. He made some little mistakes and things, and he spoke with his accents and stuff. But he got his message across very clearly. And it showed him to be a really open, confident, modern person. Compare that to François Hollande, who couldn't string a sentence together in English. The point is, you don't need to speak English perfectly in the traditional sense, but you do have to speak it and you do have to be able to get your message across. So stop worrying about being 100% accurate. Instead, being on, being, concentrate on being 100% intelligible. The main criteria is, can you express what you want to say? Not, can you express this flawlessly in the same way that someone from the BBC would do so. Now, you might be thinking still, you might be thinking, but my accent isn't good. Well, like David Crystal said, you should develop a different mindset. Start thinking more positively about all of this. But I don't speak received pronunciation. Well, neither do I. Uh, Mixed accents are the norm everywhere. English accents are much more mixed than ever before. Now, maybe in your language... uh, Maybe in your language, there is one form of standard, you know, French or whatever that is kind of uh, associated with correct, educated people, but not in English. All right. English is a very broad church. There are now hundreds of millions of people who understand each other perfectly well, but who have local accents as a reflection of their national pride. So why are the French worried about sounding French? I think there's nothing wrong with sounding a bit French, but it's very hard to convince French people of this. French people can have very negative views about some things, uh, especially their position on the world stage in terms of English, and they beat themselves up about it quite a lot, which is a bit odd. I don't think it's necessary. Uh, In comedy, I've noticed that French people seem to be okay about being insulted about their national character. You see Paul Taylor going up on stage and sort of saying some fairly insulting things about uh, French culture, but they they sort of seem to enjoy it. They enjoy the masochistic approach, it seems. Uh, Either that or they're just happy to have a foreign comedian talking about French things during a show, even if it is criticism. Making fun or insulting people is quite normal, it seems, in French comedy. And I think this is linked uh, to the way that French people often beat themselves up about stuff like English. But really, I don't think French people need to beat themselves up about English. Are you intelligible? 
fine. If you speak with a bit of a French accent, that's fine because you're French. Uh, the main job of the teacher is to expose students. So this, this was interesting for me. This is something that David Crystal said that was interesting for me, that um, the main job of the teacher is to expose students to um, a wide range of accents. Let them hear the English in different accents to prepare for the real world, to develop a sense and an awareness of the diversity, which inevitably will help to change their mindset. So um, one thing I can add here is that by hearing lots of different types of English, you get more of an overall understanding of the entire language and how it can have basically a core structure which is changed slightly in different versions of English. So the more the more different types of English you listen to, the more the, the stronger your core understanding of English will become. So this means that I should continue to play you extracts of English spoken in a variety of accents so that you can hear the whole range. So that's sort of very good thing for me to hear that it's it's a very encouraging thing for me to hear. I can continue to play you different accents in English on this podcast and in my English lessons. But also don't get hung up on your accent too much. It's very hard to cut out the traces of your origins and really it's unnecessary. It's okay you can just use the sort of the the local version of English. Just focus on being intelligible and fix your pronunciation, vocab, grammar, punctuation, etc., following this criteria of being un, uh, intelligible, and you'll be on the right path. And the local flavour of your English is all part of your local version of English, which is perfectly fine on the world stage in this broad church of the English language. That's the end of part one of this episode. I thought that I'd be able to cover all of this in two episodes. But it seems that there's so much content here that it's going to end up being two. Uh, so I guess that's the end of part one. That's all the stuff that got covered in uh, in the first part of the David Crystal interview. And I'll come back onto the podcast and do part two uh, straight away now, I expect. Uh, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this. Um, don't forget to join the mailing list on my website. Uh, go to teacherluke.co.uk. Stick your email address in the email uh, subscription form and you'll receive an email in your inbox whenever a new episode is available. That's good, isn't it? Oh, yes, it is. Thanks so much for listening and uh, stick around and you should be able to listen to part two coming very soon. But for now, it's time to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.